village. The Fields family had managed well enough with footwear to have removed themselves from the shoe factories years ago. They lived in a large, shingled house on the New Hampshire shore at Dog's Head Harbor. Jenny went home for her days and nights off, mainly to please her mother and to convince the Grand Dam that although Jenny was slumming her life away as a nurse, as her mother remarked, she was not developing slovenly habits in her speech or in her moral person. Jenny frequently met her brothers at the North Station and rode home on the train with them. As all members of the Field family were bidden to do, they rode on the right-hand side of the Boston and Maine when the train left Boston and sat on the left when they returned. This complied with the wishes of the senior Mr. Fields, who admitted that the ugliest scenery lay out that side of the train, but he felt that all Fieldses should be forced to face the grimy source of their independence and higher life. On the right-hand side of the train, leaving Boston, and on the left as you returned, you pass the main Fields factory outlet in Haverhill, and the vast billboard with the huge work shoe taking a firm step toward you. The billboard towered above the railroad yard and was reflected in countless miniatures in the windows of the shoe plant. Beneath this menacing advancing foot were the words, Fields for your feet, in the factory or in the fields. There was a Fields line of nursing shoe, and Mr. Fields gave his daughter a free pair whenever she came home. Jenny must have had a dozen pairs. Mrs. Fields, who insisted on equating her daughter's leaving Wellesley with a sordid future, also gave Jenny a present every time she came home. Mrs. Fields gave her daughter a hot water bottle, or so she said, and so Jenny assumed. She never opened the packages. Her mother would say, Dear, do you still have that hot water bottle I gave you? And Jenny would think a minute, believing she had left it on the train or thrown it away, and she'd say, I may have lost it, Mother, but I'm sure I don't need another one. And Mrs. Fields, bringing the package out from hiding, would press it on her daughter. It was still concealed in the drugstore paper. Mrs. Fields would say, Please, Jennifer, be more careful and use it, please. As a nurse, Jenny saw little use for the hot water bottle. She assumed it to be a touching, odd device of old-fashioned and largely psychological comfort but some of the packages made it back to her small room near Boston Mercy Hospital. She kept them in a closet, which was nearly full of boxes of nursing shoes, also unopened. She felt detached from her family and thought it strange how they had lavished so much attention on her as a child, and then at some appointed prearranged time they seemed to stop the flow of affection and begin the expectations, as if for a brief phase, you are expected to absorb love and get enough, and then, for a much longer and more serious phase, you are expected to fulfill certain obligations. When Jenny had broken the chain, had left Wellesley for something as common as nursing, she had dropped her family, and they, as if they couldn't help themselves, were in the process of dropping her. In the Field family, for example, it would have been more appropriate if Jenny had become a doctor, or if she'd stayed in college until she married one. Each time she saw her brothers, her mother, and her father, they were more uncomfortable in one another's presence. They were involved in that awkward procedure of getting to unknow each other.
That must be how families are, thought Jenny Fields. She felt if she ever had children, she would love them no less when they were twenty than when they were two. They might need you more at twenty, she thought. What do you really need when you're two? In the hospital, the babies were the easiest patients. The older they got, the more they needed, and the less anyone wanted or loved them. Jenny felt she had grown up on a large ship without having seen, much less understood, the engine room. She liked how the hospital reduced everything to what one ate, if it helped one to have eaten it, and where it went. As a child, she had never seen the dirty dishes. In fact, when the maids cleared the table, Jenny was sure they were throwing the dishes away. It was some time before she was even allowed in the kitchen. And when the milk truck brought the bottles every morning, for a while Jenny thought that the truck brought the day's dishes too. The sound, that glassy clatter and bang, being so like the sound of the maids in the closed kitchen, doing whatever they did to the dishes. Jenny Fields was five before she saw her father's bathroom. She tracked it down one morning by following the scent of her father's cologne. She found a steamy shower stall, quite modern for 1925, a private toilet, a row of bottles so unlike her mother's bottles that Jenny thought she had discovered the lair of a secret man living undetected in their house for years. In fact, she had. In the hospital, Jenny knew where everything went, and she was learning the unmagical answers to where almost everything came from. At Dog's Head Harbor, when Jenny had been a girl, the family members had their own baths, their own rooms, their own doors with their own mirrors on the backs. In the hospital, privacy was not sacred. Nothing was a secret. If you wanted a mirror, you had to ask a nurse. The most mysterious thing she had been allowed to investigate on her own when Jenny was a child had been the cellar and the great pottery crock which every Monday was filled with clams. Jenny's mother sprinkled cornmeal on the clams at night, and every morning they were rinsed in fresh seawater from a long pipe that ran into the basement from the sea itself. By the weekend, the clams were fat and free of sand, they were growing too big for their shells, and their great obscene necks lolled on the salt water. Jenny would help the cook sort through them on Fridays. The dead ones did not retract their necks when touched. Jenny asked for a book about clams. She read all about them, how they ate, how they bred, how they grew. It was the first live thing she understood completely, its life, its sex, its death. At Dog's Head Harbor, human beings were not that accessible. In the hospital, Jenny Fields felt she was making up for lost time. She was discovering that people weren't much more mysterious or much more attractive than clams. My mother, Garp wrote, was not one for making fine distinctions. One striking difference she might have seen between clams and people was that most people had some sense of humor, but Jenny was not inclined toward humor. There was a popular joke among the nurses in Boston at that time, but it was not funny to Jenny Fields. The joke involved one of the other hospitals in Boston. The hospital Jenny worked in was Boston Mercy Hospital, which was called Boston Mercy. There was also Massachusetts General Hospital, which was called the Mass General. And another hospital was the Peter Bent Brigham, which was called the Peter Bent. 
One day, as the joke goes, a Boston cab driver had his taxi hailed by a man who staggered off the curb toward him, almost dropping to his knees in the street. The man was purple in the face with pain. He was either strangling or holding his breath, so that talking was clearly difficult for him, and the cabbie opened the door and helped him inside, where the man lay face down on the floor alongside the back seat, tucking his knees up to his chest. Hospital! Hospital! he cried. The Peter Bent? the cabbie asked. That was the closest hospital. It's worse than Bent, the man moaned. I think Molly bit it off. Few jokes were funny to Jenny Fields, and certainly not this one. No Peter jokes for Jenny, who was staying clear of the issue. She had seen the trouble Peters could get into. Babies were not the worst of it. Of course, she saw people who didn't want to have babies, and they were sad that they were pregnant. They shouldn't have to have babies, Jenny thought, though she mainly felt sorry for the babies who were born. She saw people who wanted to have their babies, too, and they made her want to have one. One day, Jenny Fields thought she would like to have a baby, just one. But the trouble was that she wanted as little to do with a Peter as possible, and nothing whatsoever to do with a man. Most Peter treatment that Jenny saw was done to soldiers. The U.S. Army would not begin to benefit from the discovery of penicillin until 1943, and there were many soldiers who didn't get penicillin until 1945. At Boston Mercy, in the early days of 1942, Peters were usually treated with sulfa and arsenic. Sulfathiazole was for the clap, with lots of water recommended. For syphilis, in the days before penicillin, they used neoarsphenamine.